0: Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hi, listeners, and thanks for tuning in. Um, Sometimes I just get really excited about certain guests that we have on. And today, I'm really feeling that way. I'm really pumped. Uh, Today, we're going to welcome Babs Ryan And she is a hot ticket. She's got a ton of great stories. She's got a fabulous smile. And I can't wait to hear all the information she's going to share with us today. A little bit about her. She's got a pile of patents. She's been to 88 countries. And I've learned from her that there is a Century Club when you've visited 100 companies, uh, countries and she's going for that. She's a member of the Board of Directors at the Workers' Credit Union, and she's held senior roles at Publicist Group, at Forrester, and at ThoughtWorks. Um, and she's got her BA from uh, American International University and MBA from Thunderbird, so Babs, welcome. Well, hello,
1: Wendy. I'm just as excited to talk to you. And I'm going to give you a shout out because I know about your book launch in three weeks, which is the language of global marketing. And you'll have a bunch of stories in there to tell us. (laughs) <laughs> so I can't wait to
0: read it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for for talking about my book. Yeah, it's it's the launch date is April 13th. And um, you know, I had a lot of fun writing it because a lot of the questions that came from the hundreds of business leaders that we've worked with over the years, um, and stories from that. So uh thank you. But this is about you. So 88 countries work or pleasure
1: so it started out as pleasure and then it became work and then it went back to pleasure and it even with work it is a pleasure to work with another country or in another country that's what I absolutely love to do uh, I love people the best part of my job is people and I always want to know somebody or something I don't know so going to another country and meeting people from other countries or in other countries is the best way to be the dumbest one on the block and and learn a lot and, uh, you know, figure out wh- why do we do something? It really makes you think about why do we do things this way and not that way, right? It,
0: I love that. That's, I am so curious that way and you've just like defined what it is. If you go to another country, you're just, you're learning so much. You naturally are because you're, you're, you're not in there. And yeah. I think one of
1: the best ways to travel is on your own. So I've done, I've gone to a lot of places on my own. In fact, a lot of developing countries I've gone on my own. And I find if you're by yourself, you're very approachable. First of all, you're not in your own cocoon, you know, um not, hearing what's going on around you but I think when you're on your own you become so approachable that you know um, I went to Belize on a cruise ship and I rented a moped and I drove as far out of the town, Belize city as I possibly could and people were waving me down and locals were waving me down and I'd pull up and i go how can I help you and they go are you lost and I'd go <laughs> No, I'm not lost, but I'm just out here. They go, why are you out here? I go, because you're out here. Start up a conversation and invite me in to talk and tell me about their neighborhood. It was fantastic. You know? Oh, my
0: gosh. Yeah, that's certainly, I've, I've traveled. When I was in my mid-20s, I traveled through Europe with a backpack by myself. And I met one of my best friends who lives down in Florida. I still love her. I try to see her whenever I can. But the experiences that I got. So how did you get into international business?
1: Well, um. So my dad, when I was a teenager, my dad was an archeologist and he took my brother and I on a trip to Mexico, but he, we thumbed. we actually hitchhiked into the back towns of Mexico. One time we were on the back of a cement truck. We were sitting in bags of cement and fish going up to a village that did not even have running water. It was, it was called Zoquitlan. It's still a tiny village, it's less than two, 2,000 people. But that's what he did. And um, then I go to college a few years later and my boyfriend says, we're gonna be rich. And I said, how are we gonna be rich? He said, internationals, where is that? You have to get into international business and we're gonna get into international business, so we're rich. Well, we're not rich. But we're richer people because of it. But the funny the funniest part about that is he was desperate to get into international business, which became my life, and by going to this international grad school in Arizona called Thunderbird. He he didn't even he dropped out. He moved into a mortuary to save money as into the caretakers' room in a mortuary called Green Acres Mortuary. There is a Green Acres Mortuary in Glendale, Arizona. He moved <laughs> on to the caretaker's room and lived in there. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for us. And he didn't end up going abroad for years and years and years later. And the week after I graduated, I was on a plane going going to Israel, of all places, because the boyfriend I had then met had been raised in the Middle East. He was fluent in six languages. He was raised in, in Jordan and Lebanon, and he went to university at the University of Haifa. And I'm not Jewish, but he's like, eh, if you want to go somewhere in the Middle East, go to, go to Israel, it's fun. I know a lot of people there. there. You can have dinner with everybody. So I just got on a plane and went.
0: Oh my god, wait, so did you have a job, or you just graduated and said, I'm going to Israel?
1: I couldn't get a job. The economy was horrible when I graduated. And most people who came out didn't have jobs. So I went out, went there. I came back and then I got a job working in Colorado. My husband got transferred to the UK and off I went to the UK. I couldn't have been happier. So thank, thank you, Lord, that I actually met somebody like that who right. was in love with the world like I was and you know, took me by the hand and I listened to him which was really important that I listened to somebody who was smarter and more worldly than me.
0: And so you get to you, to the UK and you followed him for his job, but then were you able to get into work when you got over there?
1: It, well, so my first job was as a copy typist in an advertising agency. They actually had a job that was copy typing. It was typing up all the words that were going to be in the ad or in the direct mail piece, over and over and over again, as everybody made their edits. But I got to sit in an ad agency, which actually became a big part of my life and I love. But then I saw a job at Kawasaki, and it was another international thing that got me the job there. The British chief marketing officer had just come back from his first trip to the United States, and he loved Americans. And I walked in the door. I actually walked in to drop off my resume there, and he walked in, and I said, "I would really love to have the job in your department in marketing." And he he heard my accent, and he hired me. <laughs> I got the right accent. <laughs> and I became chief marketing officer of Kawasaki. And yes, I got a company motorcycle. So I was an American working for a Japanese company in the UK. And then he left, and I ended up reporting into a Japanese managing director, a CEO, which was incredibly an incredible experience for a young 27-year-old woman.
0: OK, so I'm still stuck on the "You got your MBA, and your first job in the U.K was typing.
1: It was typing.: Yeah. Wow. That's okay, I was happy to type because I had a job and I was learning a lot and it was great. I mean, I never would have ended up as a CEO of an advertising agency or moving up or having all the clients I did and having all the fun I did in the advertising world if I hadn't been a copy typist in an ad agency because I learned that I loved it and I love what they do
0: okay so it was an entry-level job but you you fell in love with the industry and then you had the experience of working there that that led you to Kawasaki okay Okay. so at Thunderbird did they teach you about working across cultures or how did you learn how to work in the UK for a Japanese company as an American So at Thunderbird, Thunderbird, the only degree they had at the time I went was
1: called a Master's of International Business, and over 40% of the student body were foreign nationals. They weren't Americans, So you were thrust in with, with everybody from everywhere. I seriously, I was the dumbest one in the room. I had just come out of undergrad. I went straight to grad school. I'm thrust into an environment with 40% of my neighbors are now from other countries. And I knew nothing. I'd been to, you know, three countries in my whole life. The average number of languages people spoke there was three and I was struggling to get through my Spanish class. So it was mandatory to have a second language there. You could not graduate without being, uh, having working knowledge of a not fluent of course, because you're not, living in the country, and in a year or two, you're not gonna be fluent. But you had to have a working knowledge of a second language, and you studied a part of the world, and then you studied the business skills, which, you know, marketing, accounting, and then things like import-export regulations um, that were relevant to doing business abroad. And it is, it it was always rated the number one international business Mm -hmm. goal for 30, 40 years. ASU now, um, they're part of ASU now, Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, All over the world from Thunderbird. In fact, I'm going skiing in, in a few weeks with somebody from Thunderbird.
0: So <laughs> They' are connected and I married a Thunderbird. So it's all good. Oh my gosh. Okay. So just, just going through Thunderbird, you learned a lot of cultural dexterity skills.
1: Yeah, I learned a lot. In fact, uh, one day at dinner... I had the pleasure of having somebody from India and somebody from Pakistan at the table with me. Oh, interesting. And they both told me from their viewpoint the story of how Pakistan became a country. And and what better learning would you ever have? And they, they were they were friends. And it was just fascinating to hear, well, this is how we see it. You know, this is how we see it. And it wasn't an argument. It was just, here's our point of view. This is, you know, and this is how we grow up. This is what we're told. And this is how we we view things. So um, there were people from just everywhere there. Everything was about some other place in the world. And that's why as soon as I graduated, I couldn't wait to get on a plane and go somewhere.
0: Right, right. Okay, So back to Kawasaki then, you're working there and you've got a job in marketing and you're reporting into Japan. What were some of the challenges and what were some of the things that worked in that role?
1: Yeah, so it it was very interesting. I was the first chief marketing officer in the world for Kawasaki who was female. Um, And the managing director, who was Japanese, called me in and asked to see my plan for the year, my you know, marketing plan and business plan for the year. Mm-hmm. And I was responsible for making sure our market share was up. The market was actually depressed by, by 15% at the time, which was horrifying. So I was coming into a depressed you know, motorcycle market and he looked at, okay, we're importing this many, you have to sell this many. And that was it. I never went in his office again for another year. He never talked to me, and I sold out of every single motorcycle we had. And on top of it, I sold warehouse stock that they had had for years that they were trying to um, get the dealers to buy and then customers to buy. And I did a promotion, with a le- I, I call it the leathers promotion, where I gave matching leathers with a brand-new bike. And without discounting, we sold out of four or five models in three weeks that was stuck in the warehouse. They were old year models.
0: Oh my gosh, that so is so creative he and so fun. They never
1: spoke to me. and And I realized later why. So I had never been to Japan. I wish I had been to Japan. I would have understood so much more um, and I've now been, I've only been to Japan two times more. In fact, it was my last trip before COVID. I was skiing in Japan. <laughs> COVID broke out, and you know, when I came home, it was like, don't come back in the office. Uh, we're shut down. But um, it's interesting because if one part on a motorcycle was defective, like let's say a screw broke, something as simple as a screw breaking, you know. In some countries, maybe ours, we go, oh, a screw broke. We'll just replace a screw. Every single part that that had a defect went back to Japan and would be analyzed because they believed in perfection. They were developing a bike from nothing, a brand new model in seven months when the US car industry was taking five years to design a car. Why can they design? A bike which has earlier technology than a lot of cars, the damping systems, the suspension systems, the power on a motorcycle. You know, a lot of the ideas come first on motorcycles and then go to cars. So how can they do this in seven months? So you think a lot about the culture and how they communicate with each other and how they work together. Why can they do it? And why were those machines so
0: perfect? That's fascinating. But how does that correlate to him never talking to you throughout the whole year? Because I wouldn't have guessed that for Japanese culture.
1: I have no idea why he never spoke to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know.
1: But I, but I was okay. You know, Yeah. Like I loved my job. And I had a lot of support from my colleagues. And it was a really fun place. I mean, at lunchtime, we'd go down in the downstairs where all the test bikes were. And, you know, there'd be a guy on a unicycle. We'll have little remote cars that we were racing with. And we'd ride some of the, like, baby, the 60cc motocross bikes in the the (laughs) parking lot. And I was having the time of my life. I never had more fun in my whole life as I did there. And and we were massively successful. We were the only manufacturer to increase sales that year. The only one in the country. It, it was great. So I, I don't know if him not talking to me helped. <laughs> 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 maybe a good thing. But,
0: or so maybe it's just purely everything's going well. I'm not going to step in.
1: Yeah, somebody tell Wendy why, somebody who's lived in Japan, tell Wendy why he never talked to me.
0: Yes, yes, reach out because I'm fascinated by this because, you, um, you know, a lot of Asian cultures and Japanese have more of a consensus type of management structure where it's more working together and behind the scenes. So leaving you out on your own, there's. I'm fascinated. So if anybody knows, yes, let me know.
1: Well. It, <laughs> And it's funny because you said at the beginning, oh, Babs has a great smile. Yes. So one of my Chinese friends at, at my last role, I did a trip. I was doing a keynote speech in China. And my, call, my Chinese colleague came and told me privately, thank you for doing this. He said, it's not considered polite for women to open their mouths when they laugh. Like the big mouth laugh, the big mouth oh, right. is um, considered kind of garish. It's, so in the United States, it's considered friendly and warm. So if you want to talk about different languages and body language and how you can get that wrong, there's a, there's a whole other podcast on body language, right? But that whole smile thing you know, this big grin, this big open mouth laugh. This is like, do not, he was like, don't do, don't do that here.
0: That is, that is true. Cause when I've seen Chinese, I mean, I don't know if it's true or false or whatever, but I'm glad you shared that. And it explains that when I've seen Chinese women smile or laugh or something, they will cover their mouth, um, you know, put their hand up to kind of to, to do that. So that explains that. What, what other body language stories do you have? This is very interesting. Oh my
1: gosh. Well, you know, you shouldn't do the okay with the round thing because that can mean somebody's a something whole. Um, not that, uh, you know, everything from, um, oh, oh, I know a good one. So when you cup your hand, putting your fingers and your thumb together, I, I, I've had people, you know, shake their hand doing that gently gently shaking their hand doing that i didn't know it meant wait like how would you know how would you know somebody cupping their hand with their you know palm up means wait in the middle east that means wait here's another good one i didn't know which is
0: interesting because that
1: in italy is something different yes it is so like and i talk with my hands as you might have noticed if you're watching me on uh, a video <laughs> I talk a lot with my hands I, I have to learn when I go abroad to be very careful what gestures I do with my hands because it can be perceived to mean something very different or it can appear very threatening in cultures where their hand motions are very subdued so I have Italian hands in, in Italy I'm, com- I'm completely in the right place to have the body language I have. Um, you know, the The one thing that uh, is universal is not a big horsey smile, but a gentle smile works in every culture. that That is the international language I found everywhere. And it opens doors and opens people to conversation with you. So it, it works.
0: Right, right. That, yeah, that is, uh, I wrote about that in my book. That's one of the quotes is the a- Smiles recognized internationally, so that right. is good to know and also good to moderate your smile i hadn't i hadn't thought about that or wrote, written about that <laughs>
1: well, The other thing is that people won't tell you often in some countries they won't tell you when you do something you shouldn't do so I'm in iran and i'm go I go out to buy bread, and there's maybe a line of seven people waiting for bread, so I get in the line to buy my loaves of bread at the bakery, it's outside, it's a kiosk. And, you know, I get in the line, and I'm waiting in the line. And the man in front of me motions that I should go to the front of the line. And I'm thinking, isn't that nice? Because I'm a foreigner, obviously. I'm, I'm in a burqa. I look a little ridiculous, because I'm wearing sneakers with a burqa because I'm walking a lot <laughs> don't wear sneakers with a burqa. and um he so then I, I'm like you know I do the no 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 kind of motion with you know my look and then another guy comes up and and motions me to go to the front of the line then I notice some woman walking up from the other side of the street she walks right up gets a bunch of loaves of bread and walks off and I'm like, oh, she must have an account there. She, I don't know, she called ahead or something. Yeah. So yet another guy motions me to go up. And then another woman comes from the other side and goes up, Get your loaves of bread. Guess what? I'm in the guy's line. <laughs> oh. uh, a women's line. But there were no women there because there were fewer women buying bread than men. So the women were just going up. To The woman's line, they don't stand in the same line together. They might today, but when I was there, there was always a separate line for women as men. <laughs> and I had no idea. So the guys would try to tell me, You're in the guy's line, don't stand in the woman's line. And I'm like, No, 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 no. <laughs>
0: And meanwhile, you're breaking every, every con- cultural norm that there is and offending people, and they're trying to be nice, and you'd have no idea. No
1: idea. But, you know, they were all so kind and polite right. to me. I'm shocked that nobody was, like, wagging their finger at me, but everybody was really sweet. And they, you know, think of the courtesy. Would we do that in our country if somebody's in the wrong queue? Would we... Do that? I'm not so sure. But there, I'm in the wrong queue, and everybody was nice to me and just gave me the benefit of the doubt. Oh, she just doesn't know, you know. I'm sure they didn't think I wanted to stand in the long line with the guys when there was nobody in the woman's line. But it just shows you how you can get it so wrong. That's why you really do need somebody on the ground telling you what to do.
0: Right? Yeah, and I think that it, that is true. Is when you stand out as a foreigner and you're doing something in quotation marks wrong people do have they're they are a little bit more gentle with you because they realize that oh you're different so they're kind of curious about you and watching you so it is if you take that risk and go so when you were in iran were you um working there
1: no i was actually doing a trip overland from london to australia i took a gap year And I went on a double-decker bus that was, the top bunk was fitted with bunk beds. And the bottom bunk, they had a hot plate and a a, a container to purify water. And that was what I spent about four months in. It was a company called Top Deck Travel. And when they actually put the bus, the double-decker bus on the ferry over to Amsterdam and away we went. And then I went off on my own once I got to India, so it was it was incredible. And I was the only American. Um, yes. Sorry, I shouldn't say American. I was the only person from the United States because right. Canadians are Americans, and there were two Canadians, and the rest were, uh, as you might guess, they were Aussies and Kiwis because, boy, <laughs> and they know how to travel. Let me tell you,
0: the yes, they do.
1: Companions in the universe.
0: Wait, so the bus went from the UK to, I thought you said Australia, it went to where?
1: So it went to India and then I went on my own from India to Australia.
0: Oh, thank you. Okay. I was trying to figure out how to, but a bus would get to Australia. <laughs>
1: well, they put it on ferries. So the buses can go on ferries that are going, you know, across to, uh, the islands or that's how it got from London to Amsterdam is. Yeah. Yeah. It went on the ferry with it. Yeah. Are they still around? Yeah, I think they are. Uh, I even remember the name of the bus, it was called Tadpoles. We drove through the Baluchistan Desert. So each person got to take a turn driving the bus. And I almost broke the axle. I hit a sand dune in the Baluchistan Desert, twisted out the wheel and like crashed it in into a dune. So that was my last uh, driving experience with uh, driving buses. I'll give it up. But it was amazing. And when we were in Iran. Um, we got stopped. 37 times in a week. And, and you know, your assumption would be, oh, the police are stopping us because they're giving us a hard time. It actually wasn't. What it was is they were just curious. You know, how many people do you see going through your country in a double-decker bus? Yeah. 11 of us in this bus. So they would just stop because they were just curious, you know? <laughs>
0: Which, again, is so culturally different because you'd never just be stopped because somebody's curious and they want to check you out. But have fun. I mean, interesting interactions with people.
1: Yeah, and it, it's, it's a, it is a great way to meet people if they keep stopping the bus to come on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so there's a good story. So because we were mixed, we were men and women on the same bus, um, the women had to sleep with their burkas on. So, and if they stopped the bus during the night, which they did quite often when we were going from city to city, we would have to like pull up and keep our hair concealed. It was very strict at the time. Like now you can show some of your hair. At the time, you couldn't show any hair. It was just, you know, the front of your face, your, your hands and your feet if you were a woman. So if we felt the bus stopping, you know, they'd say, we're stopping. And the women would pull the burkas like up around their face. Well, stupidly, I had used one of those glamour photos. Remember when the glamour photos were the big thing and you put on like the big makeup and you did the big hair and they put like some swath, like lacy thing around you for these glamour photos? I used a glamour photo for my passport. Don't do this. So, one of the guards comes, one of the police comes on, and they ask me the passports of everybody on. And I can hear them coming through the bus going, Barbara, 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 Barbara. And I just pretended I was asleep.
0: And the lesson is don't use a glamour photo. Well, oh, well, I don't think you can anymore. You have to go to the passport place, and they tell you don't smile, and so you've got to look very grim. But oh, I can only imagine the, the difference that you would have had in the picture versus wearing the burqa with no hair showing. Oh, these stories are fantastic. I knew you'd have them. So, after you worked at uh, Kawasaki, where did you go on from there?
1: Um, So I went to, I went a total change. I went from motorcycles and playing with jet skis and all-terrain vehicles and motorcycles all day. I went to Citibank, who would- Wow. And it was fabulous. I had this wonderful boss and I would go in. And so I was dealing with the UK market again. My customers were all in the UK. Um, And I'd go into my boss and I'd go, I have this great idea for a new product, or I want to do this. And he'd go, um, so do your P&L, do your business case, you know, write up a P&L for it. And I would do that. And he'd go, okay. Or he'd go, go ahead, test it. Like, test it. Let me know what happens and go. So having somebody like that, you know, I was in my element like, and, and I also got six weeks vacation a year. So that's how I got all those stamps in my passport as well. But it was fabulous, you know?
0: Oh, that's great. But then you ended up deciding to go back into, to, and that, that was Citibank was still in the UK.
1: Yeah. So I was at Citi in the UK and then the economy collapsed and, um, Citibank was laying off, um, tens of thousands of people worldwide and I had asked for an international transfer the year before I wanted to really go to Australia you know go on the they call it the continent if you go to Europe if you're living in the UK I wanted to go to the continent and there was no place for them to put me and they were giving out huge packages to incentivize mm-hmm. people to go nicely because um, they were very, very good to me. I loved them for everything they did for me and all the opportunities. But that's when I took my gap year. I was like, gee, I think I'll take the money and take a gap year and travel around the world for a year and then maybe emigrate back to the U.S. Because I had never worked in the U.S. at this point. I went right from grad school to the U.K. So the U.S. actually became a foreign market for me. And, and the interesting thing is, it's harder to go back to your own country, I think, after being a decade in another country. It was much, much harder for me to go back because I was different and I had a different view of the world. I had a different view of a lot of things. One of the biggest things was, you know, the advertising industry, they were five years ahead of what was going on in the US. For example, People went to movies early because the ads at the beginning of the movies were so good. So advertising agencies wrote ads just for the cinema to go on before movies. And they were so funny and so brilliant, people intentionally went to the movies a half an hour early to watch the ad. Can you imagine going somewhere on purpose to watch advertisements. The advertisements were ingenious. They were so funny. They were, you know, um, everything about them was great. And so I came back to the US and everybody kept telling me, oh, they're five years behind us. You won't know what to do. And actually the innovation in the UK, and to this day, the innovation and the, the love of change and new there, Far exceeds my experience in big companies in the US. In the US, there's a lot of people who really are terrified of change because they don't want to do a job they're not doing today. And in the UK, I found that a very different experience. I still find that different. I worked in the UK last year. I worked with some of the payments, people on the payments rails, changing the APIs of the future. And it was a ball being back in London. I love it, and I worked with an international group there. It's very international, right? If you work in London, you're with people from all over the world, too. So you're in your element in that way as well. It's diversity of thought. This is what's really important. You know, we talk about diversity here. You live in London, it's diverse. You live in New York City, it's diverse. But diversity of thought was, isn't that the end goal is diversity of thought? And that's what you had in London, and that was How many decades ago? And it's even more so today. It's a melting
0: pot. So do you think New York, because it's diverse, is similar? Or is it just more diverse and it doesn't have diversity of thought?
1: Um, I worked in New York for 10 years. And uh, a good deal of that time, I worked in the advertising industry. And I certainly saw a diversity of thought in the advertising industry. and the companies I worked, I thought it was... Fantastic. I went to GE and my boss was a guy named Kunchiori. He's the guy that started the offshoring trend in the United States. He was my boss. He the guy was a genius. He's the one that said to me, Hey, all this stuff you're thinking of is patentable. You know, go talk to this guy. He'll tell you how to patent all this stuff that you're inventing. But he was the one that went to Jack Welch and said, Hey, I can get some. I can get people in India to do risk modeling and analytics. That's what they started with before call centers. I can get them to do this better at a quarter of the price. Well, of course, it's not a quarter of the price now, but it was then. And so Jack told him, go ahead, do it. He started with 80 people and within six months, he had 800 and it just grew and grew. All these companies around in the United States heard about what McComb did and they started copying that. And that's how the whole trend to offshoring started. He, you know, maybe somebody will tell me different that they started it or they know somebody <laughs> else who started it. But I saw it happening when I was there and I was just blown away.
0: What, what, what year was that? What time um, period? It was 19,
1: 2000. It was in 2000 he did that.
0: Okay, yeah, that was, that, I don't remember much before that, because then it was shortly after that with all the call centers starting up.
1: Yeah, and they were great to work with. Our Indian team, they were phenomenal. They were great. They, they were getting up. People in the U.S., here's another thing to please, listeners, if you have people in other countries On your call, please set a time that's not two o'clock in the morning. So they're not always getting up at 2am to be on your calls. So look at the time difference and people used to forget. And these poor these people used to wake up and get on calls at 230 in the morning because people in the US forgot that there was a time difference. So, oh my gosh. So try to take turns if you can't get the whole world on a call. Try to switch around so at least part of the world can participate on most of the meetings, right?
0: Right. Are you on Clubhouse at all? I am because Thunderbird's on Clubhouse. Okay so I that's where I'm really seeing like that the flexibility of time zone first coming awake to people and how they're adjusting and you know it, because east coast time people who live on the east coast do not think on different time zones when I lived in California I could quickly calculate everybody's time zones but back on the east I don't and it's 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 a sloppy sloppy thing that we do on the east coast um yeah and and we work with a company analytics that does our bookkeeping from india and we've used them for years and they've grown with us and the work is really good the details are paid attention so and i get stuff done overnight and it's back to me so i'm not waiting for somebody to come into the office and handle it so i've uh, been very appreciative with that so you worked in advertising And you probably worked for companies that were going global. Can you talk about some of the best practices and some of the mistakes that you saw there?
1: Yeah, so um, I can give you a great example in the diamond industry. So De Beers has been my client on two occasions. So you would think, oh, a diamond engagement ring. Well, people buy a diamond engagement ring and everybody behaves the same way with a diamond engagement ring. But that would not be true. So in China, for example, the custom is if you get an engagement ring, you don't wear it every day. You put it away, and you only take it out for special occasions, and it would be considered garish, like that big, huge, poor smile, it it was described to me the horse
0: smile. Oh no. <laughs> yes, no, you you have a beautiful smile. I wouldn't call that a horse smile, but in oh, China, I guess. Yeah. It's the horse smile to them.
1: Right, yeah. It, it's not just I'm not saying I have a horse smile. I'm saying the smile that's big is a horse smile.
0: Oh, that's how it translates into Chinese. Yes, okay. The
1: smiles are horse smiles. Yeah. Like horse, horses. So, um, it's considered garish to wear a diamond engagement ring all the time so you take it out only for special events whereas in France they like colored stones rather than a diamond so you know you have to if you're trying to drive diamond sales as or the diamond engagement ring then you have to think why does somebody get a diamond in this country or why don't they get a diamond in that country? And how is that gonna change? So the big question is, do you do a global campaign, a local campaign, or is it what's called a glocal campaign, which is kind of the combination of the two. So Nike, they're actually, Nike does some of the best global marketing in the world and one thing they found a couple of years ago is they only have to advertise in 12 markets to reach almost everybody they wanna reach because they found that 12 markets influence every other market they had. So they just picked those cities and they had certain themes like sports, maybe it was football, meaning soccer football, and they might make it more local to that, but the theme was, was global and they only went to 11 cities in the world and that was it.
0: That explains a lot. I um I Nike's I did an analysis of them for the for the book to talk about how to think about localization. It's very interesting to go into their website and see which language, which sports and which products that they're doing internationally and how some will overlap with countries. So when I did the analysis, I couldn't tie it into whatever you said, 11 or 12 markets, Um, but I could see that there was some carryover and I knew they were brilliant on how they handled it. So that's a perfect example. What did De Beers end up doing?
1: So I can't tell you because they were my client. And they're (laughs) still working on some of those things. But what I can tell you about Nike is the reason why Nike is so brilliant They didn't focus on their product, they focused on people. And that's what I do. That's probably why I love the international, you know, international marketing, because it's about the differences in people. And what they focused on was why people use their product, and how they felt, and how they connected with other human beings doing it. So what they created was um, Nike Plus, as you probably know. Nike plus wasn't just the first like Fitbit type thing where the first round, you know, instead of it being on your phone, you had a monitor inside your shoe and that's what recorded your steps. What they did was they set up, they found that people ran more when they were with other people. Right. They would stick to their routine. They would go running more days. But they would also use more equipment they would buy more running clothes and they would buy more running shoes because they'd wear out. So how can we get people to run more? So they said, if we developed an app that actually got people to find other runners in their neighborhood for when they were going, we could connect human beings and get them to use our product. So that's what they did. So people could just post on there, I'm going for a run and starting in this park. I'll be there at 12. Anybody, I run, you know, I'm this level runner. If you wanna come, just show up. That's just ingenious. And then Orvis started doing it in REI. So what they started doing, in all these international companies, what they're doing is connecting human beings. This is what Airbnb's doing internationally too. Mm-hmm. So REI and Orvis started saying, we're gonna become the meetup company to go hiking or to teach you about hiking or cycling or kayaking. And Orvis was like, we're gonna have trips that people can go fly fishing together and some of them will even have a fly fishing expert on the trip so it turned into a travel company as well so all these companies are connecting people what Airbnb is doing on the international front is they are when you book a trip abroad They do a whole thing about connecting you to the neighborhood and the culture of the neighborhood and finding all the things to do and people to hang with in the neighborhood that you're gonna be in in that other country. So think of the genius put into this whole, we're not selling products anymore, we're selling people, connecting with people and having experiences. So, you know, I keep hearing customer experience, customer experience. It isn't like I go on an app and it works. Uh, You know, that's table stakes. Customer experience is experiential. Experiential is what matters now. And experiential is what am I doing with other human beings and how does that make me feel? And how do I relate to them? And there are only two degrees of separation. I believe in that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I do too. I do too. This is brilliant because I looked at Airbnb was another example that I used. I happen to pick, you know, companies that I really liked and um and they've done well. Um and Airbnb does really well on how they do some high quality translation and then they leverage machine translation where you know it's not the high quality, but it gives you good enough information, you know, like for reviews. They're not going to translate all of those. Google Translate can do that and you can see whether they loved it or hated it, you know, if if you're reading along. So, but that is, that is so You've hit it on the nail, you know, the nail on the head was with the customer experience. It's the experiential and connecting. Because I didn't think about Orvis and REI, but I have experienced what you're talking about. And that's why I like those organizations. And that's uh, Meetup is another organization that's done a good job at bringing people together.
1: Yes, and they're in, I believe they're in over 100 countries now. Meetup is a great way to meet people abroad. So, you know, what people don't think of doing with it is, hey, if I'm going over to London and I'm, uh, you know, a runner, why don't I look for the running group there or the museum buff group and go on an outing with them because they're going to find the place I would never find in the tourist book, you know, or, uh, you know, those groups will know the the out-of-the-way places because they're the local favorites. And what better way to get integrated into a local community they go out for a day with a bunch of people from that country and do something and thank god covid is uh allowing us to actually go in public and still be careful but be with people to do these things because boy i've missed that
0: right right yes it's a good thing we see see the light at the end of the tunnel, fingers crossed, hopefully, and everything. But uh, yeah, that's a good, I hadn't thought about that for Meetup. I've just thought about it for local things that I want to get involved in. So that's true with traveling. That's a fantastic idea. Another reason to travel alone is you can really meet with people and connect there. Yeah. So what recommendations would you have for companies that are thinking about doing global marketing or going global, and they're not large like the Nikes or the Airbnbs, how, how would a company start? Hire an expert. Don't think
1: you know it. Don't, don't just use somebody who translates. And you, no one would know this better than you, Wendy. It's not just about the words. It's about the way people feel like the diamonds, you could translate something telling people to, oh, you'll have this beautiful engagement ring that you can show off and wear everywhere, which is going to be completely inappropriate for the China market. It's not going to work at all. So there's more to it than just translating. It's knowing the culture, knowing the why behind what people do. So my advice is go to people who know the why. And, you know, there's, there's, Lots. I worked in consulting for so many years. There's so many great people in different countries. You can get people in those countries on your account to do the work and tell you what to do and what not to do. Um, so my advice is to get experts from those places and and get immersed. The other thing is get on a plane. Get on a plane. Um, one thing that um, one thing that was interesting. So Western Union when they were in the throes of developing peer-to-peer mobile money transfer. So what most people don't know is the first country that had broad, broad broad-scale money transfer peer-to-peer was Kenya. So back in 2010, 70% of Kenyans were already using M-Pesa to pay for like taxi fares and pay each other and pay the storekeepers and pay for groceries. 70% of Kenyans were already using per- mobile money transfer and mobile payment in, nine- in 2010. Jeez. They, they like <laughs> had the market because they didn't go, oh, you have to have a digital wallet and you have to have this and this. They just went, here's your phone, you can use it to pay. It was called M-Pesa. So then we started working on cross border. And so Western Union wanted to go in every country and let people do, you know, easy. So they hired me to go country by country and do a cultural analysis in Africa of every single country and what was important to the people in that country and only then translate it into what would the product look like or what would the best service look like. So an example is who knew in, in, in Ghana that when you pass away, it's a celebration And so they have what are called fantasy coffins or fantasy caskets where the casket looks like something that you were in love with. So they have one guy that loved Coca-Cola. He drank Coca-Cola constantly. And so his casket looked like a Coke bottle. They had another guy. He was like a world traveler. He was buried in a casket that looked like a plane. And, you know, and, and the, the part that music plays in so many countries and how people digest music. Are you going to have music as part of the product or service you sell that's, that's around money? Well, one thing people forget is you know, people were texting. They weren't calling because everything was prepaid. Your, your phone was prepaid. They didn't want to use the prepaid time, but texting costs nothing or next to nothing. So why not just enable somebody to send money cross border as long as it's legal and under KYC regulations? Why can't I just text money to somebody in another country? I don't mean going into an app. Stop doing apps, your phone is an app. The phone is an application. I don't want to download an app to use an app. Just text, you already have an app you use every day.
0: Text the money, easy. So, what? how cross border? I, I, I mean, my mind can't even keep up with that because I download an app to pay money to my kids. You know, I go to Venmo, so I have to open another ma- app. So, they, are they're actually doing that in some of the African countries to just um, be able to text. So I can't tell you the answer to that. <laughs>
1: wouldn't you rather, instead of going a Venmo, opening venue, Venmo, wouldn't you rather just go in your chat and it's, you're already sending, you know, messages to your daughter all the time. Why not just put hash Venmo one, two, three, or whatever it is, whatever they make it um, $27 hit and it takes $27 and you use your fingerprint to get into it. You right? I mean
0: Wow, yes, I would love that because as long as it was secure, I wouldn't have to open all these different accounts and remember the passcodes and you know change the account when somebody's not on Venmo and figure out what they are. Cause right now, I mean, just look at all the social media I've got to go on and manage, because I don't know when a business request could come in. But it goes back
1: to looking at behavior. So in this country, people like, oh, don't this up, right? It's even better for us. So that's how people get these international ideas that just catch on, which goes back to the point at the beginning when I said, I go to another country and I go, why don't we just do that? Doing that study in Africa about how they did things made me think, Why are we downloading, your phone is an application, the phone itself is one. Why, your messaging app is already an app that I use. There's five apps that we use for 80% of everything we do. Why wouldn't you leverage one of the five apps that we spend 80% of our time on for everything else like they do in China with WeChat WePay?
0: Right, right. Right? Yeah.
1: Who's doing it? better maybe not better but different not or
0: bad. more efficient right but that's the differences of thought the diversity of thought where you get the different people together and you put them all together yes yes right. and then somehow you open up the minds to people who live in the united states that there are better easier ways of doing things yep
1: that's yeah. the magic That's the magic.
0: Yeah, and back to um, finding people in country, and they're, you know, with translation companies, they have started separating out. There's some that specialize in automation. There's others that specialize in machine translation with human reviewing. And then there's others that really do the quality and will give you feedback as to if something's not working uh, across a language if you've come up with a globalized campaign. And so it really is important to know what you're trying to do, and which agency is gonna work right with you. And then the other good point that I wanted to um, build upon that you said is from product development, think global from the start. Because so often, particularly with tech companies, we're seeing it now where they build it for the English language, and then when they go to expand across borders, they can't handle multiple languages easily enough. And that's been a challenge.
1: Yes, it is. It is a challenge. So it goes back to it's not about the tech, it's about what it does. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) So well said again, we're coming to the end of the time. And I'm, I'm so bummed because I could go on for another hour. Um, But you know, this question's coming, I think. What's your favorite foreign word? Um,
1: La. I think it's la. So so it, la is, is the noise we make when we sing. So we go la, 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 <laughs> la. However, in Arabic, la means no. That's not a good thing, but it can be a good thing. So um, in uh, in the UAE, we turned that, at for one of my clients in banking, we actually turned it into... An advertising campaign so there were a lot of job sites and you know when you go buy a job site they have a a huge either you know fence around it and in the UAE in Dubai they had billboards all the way around the job site they would sell it as advertising space to fund the building so we had a product a new product that was from Standard Chartered Bank and we wanted to sell it and And what we came up with is, oh, my God, this has none of the no-no's. It has no fees. It has no overdrafts. It has none of this. It has none of that. So we had none of the no-no's. So we turned it into la-la. So what we did was we circled half the job site with the word la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. And we put finally a product that's something to think about with none of the no-no's you're used to in banking products
0: oh my gosh that's fabulous
1: so i choose to say it's my favorite word for the singing part because i i love to sing even though no one wants to hear me singing (laughs) it's a happy thing to sing mr blue sky every morning and i love the la 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 in the morning because it makes the world happy and singing is a universal thing music and is a way to express emotion so i think one of the best languages is the language of music that can express so much without words as well.
0: Oh, that's so true. So if, if in Arabic, la means no, then if they're just faking the words to something and they're not using la, what do they use instead to sing?
1: Oh, I, I, they would probably say la, 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 la. <laughs> 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 and you know a dog makes a different noise in a bunch of languages, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, Ouch. So the Germans go awa. Like, if we get hit, we go, ouch. They go, awa, awa. Like, <laughs> oh, like, make different languages and different noises. Like, pigs don't go oink, oink. They have different noises for animal sounds. Very interesting.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I've heard that before. And we lived in Mexico when I was little. So we learned all the animal noises there. And then coming back into the United States, we had to learn them here. Now it's been so long, I don't remember. But I'm sure they'd, they'd come back. I just remember they were different. How about your favorite vacation?
1: Oh my gosh. There's been so many. I, I love different countries for different things. Vietnam has uh, just amazing food where every morsel that goes in your mouth is incredible. Bhutan was just beautiful beyond belief. Um, I love the country of Jordan because I have um, a lot of friends there. And I love the women there. They're so entrepreneurial. They're so business smart. They're so well-educated and they put it to use in their go-getters. I, I love that country because their women are so strong and powerful. Um, China, because every day is an adventure and it makes me think about things. Uh, I don't know. I've been to 88 countries. I think I have 88 favorite vacations. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I love that summary. I have just now added on some places to my vacation list, which just keeps getting longer. <laughs> and any final recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, get on a plane as soon as you're like double vaccinated with all your,
1: your uh, mask and protective equipment and go somewhere and meet other people somewhere. And, and uh, the, here's the best piece of advice next time somebody you work with suggests something different or new and you're uncomfortable with it say yes say yes to letting them try it because the best thing in life is trying things you don't try that weird food in another country that turns out to be duck feet you're you're just try try something new whether it's a new country new people New food, new experiences, just do anything new. Your soul will just sing and it won't say Lala. Don't say Lala anymore.
0: That's <laughs> Don't say Lala, but sing Lala. Sing Lala. <laughs> oh my gosh, Beth, you are so fantastic. And I mean, the stories that you tell and how you tie it in together, I knew this would be delightful. So thank you so much for being here today.
1: All right, Wendy, and I look forward to reading your book in three weeks. Congratulations on the launch. Well done.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for tuning in today. Um, This has been a a fabulous episode. So I am sure that you've got somebody who is interested in international business or travel. This is a good general listening fun one that I learned a ton from. So go ahead and share uh, share it with somebody that you know and definitely give it a five-star recommendation. So we'll be back next time with another interesting guest. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.